What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Alda Lai. Alda is the founder and principal of Alda Lai Architecture. Her firm is based in New York City and focuses on interiors with a specialty on tech-driven commercial projects. She previously worked at design firms Leong Leong, HWKN, and Raphael Vignoli Architects, where we actually overlapped for a few months. While studying at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, she launched Mass Design Group, a spectacular nonprofit design practice focused on humanitarian work. It has since grown to a team of over 140 architects, landscape architects, engineers, builders, furniture designers, writers, filmmakers, and researchers representing 20 countries around the globe. She is originally from New Zealand, and I presume then a fan of the uh, Flight of the Concords. We will be talking about her work uh, across the country for TIA, a women's health network, and in particular on their location in San Francisco. More broadly, we'll be talking about the future of commercial design in a post-pandemic world. So thank you so much for being here with us, Alda. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start with Los Angeles. Your dad uh, was a cabinet maker and talked to us about the influences growing up and having that design aesthetic and that process around you, how that influenced your own career choices. Yeah, sure. So we we grew up in the suburbs of L.A. We moved to the U.S. from New Zealand, and I can get into that a little bit later. But we're, you know, my parents were, you know, they were working class. They they were busy with working and just trying to make ends meet. So we didn't have very much formal exposure to art or design or architecture. They didn't, you know, my parents didn't have the time nor the even, you know, awareness that they should be exposing us to this. So, you know, I really had a very, I think, um, culturally very sheltered upbringing. And so it was, you know, it was when I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and I studied architecture there. But prior to that, like like you said, my father was a cabinet maker. Um, he had many, many jobs, but that was the one that was the most that resonated with, with me the most. 
he worked on a lot of residential projects and they weren't very inspiring. I think they were very like, you know, straightforward, mm -hmm. traditional style, beautiful, you know, like beautiful homes. And I think his clients, you know, they, they were, you know, the, the, the taste style was very standard. So it wasn't inspiring design wise, since it was mostly traditional style cabinetry, but the visits were like, I would go with him on site to mm -hmm. install or to go kind of take measurements, but they were significant to me in the sense that I could see how design could dramatically change a space before and after. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really sparked my interest in architecture. And so that led me to, you know, applying for architecture at UC Berkeley. So it was a little bit of a, I didn't have anything aside from that kind of gut feeling that I mm -hmm. would enjoy it. You know, I was good at the sciences. I was good at art. Otherwise it was just like, hey, let's see how it goes. And it went well. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And your upbringing has so many echoes to my own. So first generation from an Asian country background, grew up working class. And what I think is so fascinating is this idea that exposure to art and design and particularly what it means. And I think when you see it from a Western lens, it can sometimes mean this idea of beautiful things in this place that's hard to get to, and you have to be a certain person to go there, like a museum, to feel comfortable. When you think about it, like, for example, for my own background, Indian and Pakistani, is that art comes through every aspect of life, whether it's your clothes, the food you eat, the way you communicate with people, the way that you lay out your house, the way your religious institutions look. All of that is art and architecture, whether others choose to appreciate it that way or not. And I think for me, my growth as an architect was that self-realization about that particular background and seeing the world in a very different way as I grew. Did you have like any experiences like that as you were growing up and kind of going through your career as an architect? I think I fell in love with the process mm -hmm. more so when, you know, I'm sure this was similar for you, but when I was growing up, you know, it was, the focus was 100% on academic achievement, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, it, my family's Chinese, but my parents were born and raised in Vietnam and they escaped Saigon during the Vietnam War. And as refugees, they moved around Southeast Asia and then mm -hmm. we settled in New Zealand where my brother and I were born and we moved to the US. So they were, you know, like I said, just working like double shifts at restaurants, mm -hmm. just trying to like pay the bills. So I was just focused on like studying mm -hmm. and, you know, doing well and getting into a good school. And I think, you know, that's a very specific kind of like way to learn. But once I got into college, like I got, I took my first studio class, which was a drawing studio at UC Berkeley. Your first studio is all about hand drawing. And I don't know, this was like way back in the day. I don't know what mm -hmm. if it's different now, but it's all about hand drawing and and it's not just, you know, it's not a light class. It's like, you know, you're staying up all night working on deadlines, similar to mm -hmm. architecture design studios that, you know, we're more familiar with. But I think it was that process that I really fell in love with of just like working so hard towards something mm -hmm. and, you know, feeling exhausted, but so proud and, mm -hmm. you know, having that reward at the end of being able to talk about the work and talk about the process. So I think that it was really that that really mm -hmm. like hooked me into architecture and design. I think it's that idea of 
perseverance and persistence that is the immigrant aesthetic yeah. that was also the architect aesthetic too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think, yeah. the, but I was, I mean, I, I was a sponge, you know, I showed up to classes. I would just like take it all in and it mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, I was a blank canvas. So I think in particular, I, I really liked this idea of approaching design from a process as opposed to a design canon, because oftentimes, uh, especially in architecture school, we're taught about certain designs and certain styles. When in reality, I think whether you're a cabinet maker or an architect, it's always a design in service of the person using it. And I think if you are really good at observation and really good at uh, listening, I think that those are often the most important skills rather than adhering to a certain style or a certain way of doing things. So I dig it. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So the first firm that you uh, launched was Mass Design Group that um, I talked a little bit about in our introduction. And talk to us about the steps that you took from what I'm thinking was a, a very amazing, inspiring thought to begin with, and then actually actualizing it to something that has grown to 140 design professionals. How did that happen? Yeah, I and I can't take, you know, most of the credit for this. Like I... I was there from the very beginning mm -hmm. and we, you know, Mass Design Group was started by a whole group of us during our second year of grad school. We were at the MARC, uh, in the MARC program at the GSD at Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really spearheaded by my dear friend, Michael Murphy. Mm -hmm. And it took a whole studio sized group of us to get it launched and off the ground. But I went with Michael and Maria Kashiori Clark at the time to Rwanda during our winter break of our second year. We were mm -hmm. there for a few weeks to, um, and we went to Rwanda and we had applied for some travel grants through the school too. Mm -hmm. So we were supported by the GSD to, to get started. But Mass Design Group started from the Batara Hospital project. And, you know, it was funded partially by Partners in Health. Mm -hmm. And I was involved in the very early years to get the design started and drawings and coordination with the team in Rwanda. You know, at, but at some point I needed to focus on completing grad school while Michael, Marika <laughs> and uh, of our other classmates really pushed through the project to completion. Sure. So, you know, they, they were the ones that were instrumental to getting that started. And then, you know, I remember sitting at a cafe with Michael and Marika mm -hmm. in that, on that first trip and thinking about, you know, this is something that the world doesn't have. And, you know, we knew that there was an interest in it and mm -hmm. we, we sat there and we thought about names for the firm and <laughs> we came up with mass, which stood for a model for architecture serving society. Mm -hmm. So that was the be the beginnings of it. And really, yeah, Michael kind of ran with it. And they've done so many incredible projects. And, you know, now Michael and Alan and, you know, the whole team are, are yeah, I'm, I'm so proud of everything they're doing today. That's fantastic. And it sounds like there's probably other interpretations of the name as well. Uh, this idea of a large group yeah. of people, the idea of a large uh, like exactly. value in terms of the projects from Massachusetts. So mm -hmm. mass design groups, so <laughs> a bunch of those things together. Right, exactly. And like, and we were also thinking like critical mass, like this is the time mm. and, you know, everyone, you know, wants to do something like this and we need, you know, we need the masses. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then your second firm is Alda Lie Architecture. And 
when you made the decision to leave working at some spectacular farms, like uh, with our friend Matthias Holowich at HWKN, why did you do that? And what did you hope to accomplish in starting your own firm? I knew it required two things. The feeling like I had enough experience to do the actual work on my own, and also the feeling that I was ready to lead a firm. Before my practice, before starting my practice, I worked yeah, at Holwich Kushner. I worked at other firms, large and small. Mm-hmm. The projects range from large to small scale. I worked on resort master plans. I worked on very detailed custom decorative tile for high-end luxury retail stores. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really everything in between. And after almost 10 years, I realized that I love the scale of commercial interior design. I love the pace of it. I love that you could really shape an experience and all all the details matter, the finishes, like the the lighting, the color, the acoustics, the way that certain, you know, furniture layouts are oriented. And so I knew that was the direction that I wanted to go for my own personal work. And throughout my time working at previous employers, I got experience in design and project management, working with clients and contractors. I wrote proposals, I put fees together. So, you know, I really had I had checked all those off and I had a strong interest in the operations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything was there. It was just a matter of like kind of taking the leap. Mm -hmm. There was also always a hesitation too, because I had, I knew I always, always wanted to have my own practice one day, but as an introvert, I always thought that I would, you know, be a solo practitioner and do my own small thing, or Mm -hmm. I would need a partner. I never thought I would be good at, you know, schmoozing and networking to get projects <laughs> and contracts. And, and um, you know, I didn't want the sole responsibility of like leadership or having the spotlight on me in any way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there was always a little bit of hesitation, but then I just jumped in. You know, I was lucky to have my first project come to me. It was the wing, mm-hmm. a woman's working space. So it was couldn't have been a more perfect first project for for me. That was in New York City, the first location that you worked on, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that was the New York location. I had worked on a smaller kind of pilot space in the Flatiron area in Mm -hmm. New York, but um, and that was with a previous firm. But several months after I left, the clients reached out to me to say that they were about to build a flagship location and they needed a woman architect. And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> raise my hand. Here I am. I got you. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah, I got you. So it was a place for women to work and to mm-hmm. work together and to thrive and build a network. So I couldn't have been more excited. And I mean, I think it was this project that really kind of set the tone for how we work today. Mm-hmm. It's here that we we first really understood the importance of, you know, talking to the users, having, you know, lots of thorough interviews and putting ourselves in their shoes to design the space. So so that really set the tone. And as we took on more projects beyond that, we really developed that project. And, and now we carry that same mentality of deep listening, constant mm-hmm. learning to represent all of the users in our designs. That's terrific. So I think that's probably a good segue to start chatting about our focus, which is the TIA San Francisco project. Before we dive into that particular one, Tell us about TIA and what it actually does. 
Yeah, so Tia is a full service women's healthcare platform, and they are starting to build many brick and mortar locations. So it's a one stop shop for women's health. Mm-hmm. They have physical, mental, emotional health covered, um, both in person and virtual. They do gynecology, primary care, mental health, acupuncture. So they're really focused on the whole person and mm-hmm. um, they use like I said, technology, but also they have beautiful clinics that we're working with them on designing. And uh, given that their uh, growth has happened during the pandemic, how has that impacted the way that you look at the design of a space, given that healthcare traditionally has been a very in-person endeavor? I think relatively recently, there have been changes in that. Yeah, I think with TIA and healthcare and actually a lot of the other commercial projects that we're working on, everyone's, you know, everyone's thinking about like, what is it going to take to bring people to our space? Mm-hmm. Now that people don't are, you know, are afraid to leave their houses, you know, mm-hmm. what, what could we offer mm-hmm. them to make sure that they're taking care of their health, that they're not ignoring any, you know, any red flags. So mm-hmm. with Tia, it was really about making, creating a home for their members and their mm-hmm. patients so providing really incredible amenities, making it feel comfortable, making it feel safe mm-hmm. so that it didn't feel like you were walking into a space that you weren't familiar with. Like it felt like home. Mm-hmm. And then the particular location for TIA San Francisco, where is it within the city itself? And were there any interesting or peculiar parts about the site that was uh, something that inspired you? It's located on Mission and 11th. The building itself was originally a Coca-Cola bottling factory. And we, as okay. soon as we saw a photo of it, we fell in love and we we're like, let's do this. This Wait, is it had like the, like um, the whole like things going around the bottles, the machines, all that was still well, there? Not anymore. I would have loved to see that, but not anymore. <laughs> it's empty, but it has a lot of the original kind of art deco detailing around it. And there's a clock tower so all of that has been restored for the most part. So, you know, for our project, we're really coming in with the interior design and architecture of the building. So we, you know, it's going to be a modern renovation of a beautiful historic building. So it, which is what I think it's similar to the way that we see the way Tia is changing traditional women's healthcare too. Mm-hmm. It's 10,000 square feet. There's three floors. There's a roof level and, you know, we're planning an incredible roof deck there. As part of the roof deck, we're putting in a rooftop farm. Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous building. We're so excited. That's really awesome. And then given that there is a design aesthetic uh, there as well, um, talk to us about the material choices that you made in order to complement the design that was there or perhaps uh, stand out. We're using, I mean, Tia has such a strong brand. Mm-hmm. If you if you look them up, I mean, they're bold, you know, they're colorful. And, you know, we wanted to bring that to complement the historic building. So there's bright colors. There's also, you know, there's beautiful old historic, the, the windows, the industrial windows. So, you know, we're getting great daylight. Uh, we wanted to bring in warm materials like woods and, you know, soft colors. So it's really just going to be, you know, lots of really warm, bold colors to complement what's currently there. Okay. And then given that the 
firm and or the company is relatively new and what they're trying to do is relatively unusual in the history of healthcare. What was the prompt that they gave you? Like, how did they tell you, okay, start? Like, <laughs> what, what did they tell you? Well, Tia, when we started working with Tia, they had a space already in New York City in the, I think it's the Flatiron area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, overall, the space that Tia wanted was to reflect their mission, mm. whether it's, you know, patients, care providers or staff, that everyone should be seen and heard and cared for. So to achieve this goal, we offered a variety of, you know, settings, you know, privacy levels, personalized features, different hospitality style experiences all over the building. Tia wanted the building to feel like it belonged to its members. So mm-hmm that they could move around and have it feel like home. So, you know, navigation and wayfinding was really important to the design. We use clear sight lines. We use bold and distinct colors and materials to anchor certain, you know, experiences and, you know, visual kind of anchor points and destinations. There are exam rooms staff lounges, conference mm-hmm. rooms, and they're all easy to find. So the wayfinding was really important to that. That's really fascinating to to hear because when I think of like a traditional hospital, uh, which likely I had to spend too much time in, is one where the, the feeling that you get is that you're not supposed to be there. It's confusing and yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> And that's probably the way that I also register government buildings as well. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I think that that idea of simply showing somebody the way could probably help them feel like they should be there rather than shouldn't be there. What were some of the things that you heard in the, the customer discovery that you were that you were doing that helped lead you to that path? A lot of the research, you know, was really kind of coming from our own experiences as well. Like we're a firm of, you know, we're from a 12, 11 of us are women. And, you know, some of us have children, some of us, you know, are, are younger, some of us are older. So, you know, we have a range of experiences as women. And of course, like going to the doctor is typically quite stressful. And I've had two kids in the last few years. So mm-hmm. I've had lots and lots of doctor's visits. And one, you know, one experience that I, you know, I like to talk about is that of when you're done with an exam and, you know, you get dressed and you come out of the exam room, there's no clear signs of ways to get out. So, you know, it's a maze. You're literally mm-hmm. looking for exit signs to try to get out of your doctor's appointment. And, you know, my heart races, I get stressed out, I, mm-hmm. I start sweating. So yeah, it's not easy for me. And I think that's a very common experience. So there's lots of, you know, examples of that, that we've been through, that we use to inform the way that we design for uh, projects like TIA and, health, and healthcare projects in general. That's fascinating because now that I think about the healthcare experience that I most enjoy, it's actually going to my dentist because I'm at the tail end of Invisalign. So I've had many visits to my to my dentist. And what what's so fascinating in particular is, A, it's incredibly well designed in terms of its material palette, tons of natural light. Uh, it's right on the water in Hoboken where I live. So there's nice views, very pleasant 
vistas, you see the ferry going back and forth. And what I think they did really cleverly is define what are the uh, parts of the visit where someone could be totally fine being in a semi-public space where there are really no walls. There's just some kind of separations between uh, the places where the different dentists are working. And where are there particular parts of the process where you do really need to have your own room that's separate from others with a door that can close? And I think the the reality is, is particularly with, with dentistry, is that the time that you need to have a door that's closed is when you're getting x-rays or something in particular that's Mm -hmm. wildly uncomfortable, (laughs) like getting a tooth pulled. That's probably like the only two instances, but everything like related to Invisalign for me was all in this completely open space. And I think that perhaps even rethinking the process of what is happening step-by-step and what could be where, was that potentially a part of, of your thought process as well? Yeah, I love your description of this dentist office. It makes you want to go there too, right? <laughs> it does. Let me know. <laughs> Your dentist is. And actually, we've worked on a couple of dental projects too. And one important thing, it just made me think of it as you were talking, but sound is really mm. interesting as how sound carries through a space. And, you know, for for some of these clinics that have open kind of exam areas, you know, what can be grouped together typically are the things that are quiet, right? Mm. And, you know, in addition to the uncomfortable, you know, procedures and private conversations, of course, need to be separated. But, you know, people don't want to hear other patients drilling. (laughs) (laughs) It only scares them. (laughs) Yeah. So sound is really important. Yeah, with Tia, we really focused on the exam room experience mm, okay. and what that's like for a woman. And, you know, you, you may not be familiar with it, but <laughs> typically to, <laughs> no, to go to, for a gynecology visit, you know, you come in and you have to get undressed. So, you know, that's a very, very awkward sequence, right? So you come in, they give you a gown and, you know, they, they tell you to get undressed, they pull a curtain and they leave. And so you're just scrambling to get undressed, put on your gown and, you know, can sit there patiently mm-hmm. <laughs> while a doctor, you know, comes in at some point and you don't know whether it's going to be in 30 seconds or it's going to be in 20 30 minutes. minutes. So, you know, you know, 30 minutes, right. So we've, we really thought about that and what would make somebody more, much more comfortable and, you know, where you, we've designed personal kind of patient closets We've redesigned the the way that the curtains close in a particular way so that it, you know, really kind of makes you feel safe or you're not going to, you know, be startled by somebody who opens the door. Um, so I think all of that has a lot to do with the overall just happiness of, you know, and, and the success mm-hmm. of the, the visit to the clinic. Do you know what, what that makes me think of is... I spent time in uh, Williamsburg and Greenpoint and then later in Prospect Heights. And I think, so I've had a chance to live in very modern buildings, like essentially a converted loft, and then also in incredibly beautiful historic buildings. And I think particularly why I'm mentioning this is that there is a a level or a sense of graciousness to the layouts of uh, older historic buildings. So for example, uh, living in a a two-bedroom, one-bath with a good friend of mine, Dennis, is uh, it was relatively large at about a thousand square feet. And 
in perhaps a modern building, it would be a huge open living room and kitchen that you directly walk into, and both of the bedrooms would open directly onto the living room. But what's so interesting and peculiar in, in the same way is that in this particular apartment, you walk in and there's an opportunity to put like a really nice piece of artwork or a bookcase. And then you turn and there's a relatively long uh, hallway where you can put artwork on one side as natural light, which looks nice. And then you open onto a living room, you continue walking a bit, and then there's a single turn that happens for one of the bedrooms and a little bit of a turn that happens to the other. So in a thousand square feet, you get an immense amount of privacy, which is really yeah. just done with certain moves on where a hallway turns and what you can see when that happens, which I think is is something I'm, I'm thinking that it, that it was part of what your thought processes were as well then and, and within the exam room itself. Yeah, and, and not just in the exam room, but also in the waiting area. And mm. this is something that we think about, you know, for for a lot of our healthcare projects and even projects like like the wing, providing an a variety of kind of seating options and mm. different orientations and views, even if it's a large open space, it creates that that perception of of privacy and security. So that you really never feel like somebody is, you know, kind of hovering over your shoulder or that you, you know, you you need to kind of be a part of this larger kind of communal space if you don't want to. So providing options for seating, like carving out different, no like smaller nooks to sit mm -hmm. and, you know, get a little cozy in. For some of our women's health projects, we have you know an active waiting area and a more private quiet waiting area you know at gynecology and ob offices there are you know very sensitive things happening you know you may be coming to celebrate because you just found out you're pregnant or mm. you could be there to follow up with a miscarriage so you know we really have to we think about the emotions of the people who are coming into the space and how to design for that and meet them where they are. So that's really important. And I think that's that's done, you know, I think pretty successfully when we give people options. I'm uh, going to take a, a moment here just to let our listeners know that we'll be having the wonderful architect Edwin Harris on the podcast next month. He is a professor of architecture at NC State and a co-founder and principal at Evoke Studios based in Durham. A fun fact, he is the second research triangle-based architect that we will have on the show this season. And I'm sure we will spend time trashing Duke's men's basketball team together. So head to AmericanBuildingPodcast.com to listen to past episodes and click on the links there to subscribe via iTunes or any other of the major podcast platforms. So Redist is a technology company that is innovating around an age-old problem financing real estate deals. This machine learning driven platform is an end-to-end -end solution for brokers, developers, investors, and others in the building industry looking to unlock the $100 billion of tax credits and other real estate incentives given out every year in the United States. Learn more at bdist.us. And finally, for any person in real estate looking good, whether you're in an office or a construction site is very important. So I'm a huge fan of Mac Weldon's performance clothing lines, including their shirts and pullovers, which I'm rocking right now. Check them out for yourself at macweldon.com.
So let's talk a little bit more big picture. So your approach to commercial design projects like TIA allows you to work at very large scales. So from the idea of an entire building renovation all the way down to the, the tiniest of details. One thing in particular is that you have an interest in furniture. So uh, talk to us about those first trips that you went on with your dad, and then from there, how your interest in furniture uh, grew and grew. Yeah, I love I love this small scale. We've just recently, I guess in the past two years, um, started offering interior design services. I started mm-hmm. my company as an architecture firm, my background, and I'm a licensed architect. But now we offer interior design, and we're even offering styling services and coordinating with greenery and artwork. Mm -hmm. So we're realizing more and more as we work with clients that want their spaces to feel unique, that we need all of those layers really to create that experience. So the architecture, the interior design and the styling, you know, really need to come together. And, you know, without one of those layers, it starts to feel like something is missing. So we've really kind of push to tell a full story through, you know, everything we do down to, you know, from furniture, from, you know, starting with the the architecture and the layout to the furniture, to the styling. And, uh, you know, we have an incredible interior design team uh, led by Tanya Chow. And we're, we're even working on a design for a furniture piece with a contract furniture manufacturer. So I don't think I'm allowed to talk too much about that yet. But <laughs> okay. That should be failing soon. <laughs> I think um, one thing that reminds me of in particular is earlier this season, we had on uh, Galia Solomonov and Camila Krasut on the show. Both are architects that did their initial training in Latin America, so in Argentina, in Galia's case, or in Venezuela, for Camila's case, and both continue their education in New York City. And what they recalled is this interesting difference where at the beginning part of their training, there didn't seem to be bounds in what design actually meant. So for them, it was rather comfortable and normal within a school format to be working on a, for example, like a furniture or an industrial design project. And then the next Next project they worked on was an urban design uh, scale project. And it's when they came to the United States to complete their studies that they noticed that here we tend to compartmentalize to what a architect does versus what a interior designer does or a product designer com- does. When in particular, I would imagine being a really good furniture designer has many of the same requirements and attributes that being a really good architect does. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, I do. I, I do agree with that. I and I think you're absolutely right. The way that we were trained, we're not we're not trained to think about it in that way. And it's mm-hmm. only through practice that that we've discovered that. Like I've, you know, I went to school, uh, like I said, in undergrad at Berkeley, where, you know, they teach you to to design from the user's perspective, right? Like, what does it feel like when you walk in the room? Like, what do you see? Where does the light come from? How do you do, you know, how do you turn, how do you move through the space? And that, that was like, I loved that, that way of thinking. And when I went to the GSD, it was very, very different. It was more about the building itself mm-hmm. and the form of it and you know how it sits in the landscape in, you know, the urban setting. So, you know, when, when I 
started working after grad school, I didn't really know how to design interiors at all. I thought that I had a very minimalist style. So that meant white walls and of course you know, it did. <laughs> a, a little gallery reveal at the bottom and that, you know, and one piece of beautiful furniture and a plant. And that mm -hmm. was my style. But that was really just because I didn't know how to design interiors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, it took a long time for me to really feel comfortable with designing at a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it you know, you think about you know, what people need, what the users need, uh, designing from that experience, you know, what they touch, the details. I think it's it's a very similar thought process. I think what there is, is that there may be this prejudice against the smaller scale as if yeah. it doesn't particularly matter. And I think that what I would say is probably one of the things that I had as the biggest aha is, so uh, both of us are really familiar with the Princeton area, the uh, Museum of Art at Princeton, recently had a really special exhibit, which was illuminated manuscripts from ancient Persia. So those were illuminated manuscripts, both religious texts, so from the Quran, as well as uh, depictions of ancient Persian history. And these were all about like four inches by six inches, the entire painting relatively of that scale. And when you look at it, you're like, ah, oh, that's not a piece of artwork. It's literally four inches by six inches or like something <laughs> of that scale, relatively small. But then you look at it and you're like, Oh my God, there are so many stunningly beautiful details that are put in this really tiny scale. And I think particularly like for me as an architect, I've never had a chance to work on that scale of interiors until renovating my parents' house also in the Princeton area. And uh, when you actually are the person responsible for choosing the particular base molding that goes on throughout the house, then going to buy said base molding and putting it in your car or the samples of it in your car or uh, the particular handles that you use for the kitchen. And then you realize there is an opportunity to inject the same line of thinking that you put into the design of a building about how would someone use this? How would someone touch that particular handle? How comfortable is that? Where does it look in terms of the overall the kitchen cabinetry, for example, as a piece of artwork on its own. How does that whole assemblage look? And I think if you give yourself the agency and the the room to make those decisions and give it the same level of importance as architecture, architecture, I think there's opportunities for really, really beautiful end results. We recently redid our kitchen. We, and Atif, if you're saying the Princeton area, you're referencing that because we have just moved to the Princeton area exactly. for all the <laughs> listeners. We don't know, but we recently re renovated our kitchen, and my favorite detail or favorite product that we used is a cabinet door pull that's shaped like a T. It's matte black. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's like curved in all the right ways, and I selected it because you could pull it with one finger or both fingers mm -hmm. uh, at the top and the bottom. But it it's the perfect little shape to hang our baby's bibs on so that they can dry over the sink. And it's my favorite part of the house. <laughs> mm -hmm. I dig it. I think there's, there's so many opportunities uh, for, for design to be so specific and so uh, respectful of the person that's using it. So one thing you talked about in your description recently was the use of plants in your design, which is a little bit different than the thinking that architects, uh, maybe even interior designers have. Uh, and this idea of biophilic design is a strategy that means going beyond uh, traditional construction materials and including uh, living elements. So could you talk in more detail about 
what that is and how that plays a part in your own design process in your projects. Yeah, sure. At its core, biophilic design is really about connecting people back to nature. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not just about adding plaques, but I think there is it's much more complex than that. There's a lot of evidence that biophilic design in spaces can lead to a number of really positive impacts on people's health and well-being. Um, it reduces tension, anxiety, and anger. It improves cognitive function and performance. It improves people's moods. It lowers blood pressure and lowers cortisol or stress levels. Mm -hmm. So we started looking into biophilic design for our first location of Parsley Health in New York City, which is a functional medicine clinic in in New York. And our client, uh, Robert Burson, she had one goal for the design of the space, and that was that she wanted the space to heal people too. And we just loved that. So we really like tried mm. to run with it and we dove deep into researching biophilic design. And we wanted to put, you know, all of that great research into practice into our space. So we, we used a guide called the 14 Patterns of Biophilic Design, which was put together by uh, Terrapin Bright Green, a consulting firm. And, you know, and there's so many great examples of, of how you can connect people back to nature um, beyond, I mean, bringing in plants is one of our favorite ones um, because it's, it's, you know, relatively easy to do, sometimes harder to do if it's more, you know, if there's not a lot of natural daylight. Um, so we have to think about, you know, uh, grow lights and electrical requirements, but, you know, our, our favorite example of it in Parsley Health specifically is the way that we laid out the hallways and the exam rooms. I mentioned that example of coming out of of an exam and feeling very lost. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in order to address that, we, we designed the entire space around one big, beautiful corridor with Mm. a plant installation at one end and the other at the other end is, you know, the the lounge with, you know, big bright windows and a big chandelier. So as soon as you walk out, you know exactly where to go and, you know, there's no anxiety. And so that, you know, the, the layout itself is even part of biophilic design. So what can you do to reduce stress levels, right? So other examples are using the patterns and the colors of nature found Mm -hmm. in nature so you know if you think about any kind of natural scene like what are the colors found there like the blues and the greens Mm -hmm. and you know the the sandy colors and browns and reds and oranges so um, all of those colors really kind of can put you at ease and the textures so you know even if it's even if it's not natural even if it's man-made it can still you know, give you positive effects, right? And uh, geometric patterns as well, because a lot of those are found in nature. You know, also changes in the senses, like a breeze coming through a window or seeing curtains move, you know, as it blows through the wind Mm -hmm. or hearing the sound of water and, you know, seeing the light kind of change through a screen of, you know, creating shadows. So a lot of those things all come together to really change people's moods and reduce stress. And we try to do that as much as possible in not just our healthcare projects, but even, you know, workplace. I think that's really important because people are spending eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours in an office. Mm -hmm. That sounds incredible. So it feels like there are so many 
amazing tools that you've uh, let us in on in terms of uh, working our way backwards, uh, the use and integration of greenery as well as natural colors and uh, styles into a space. The idea of thinking beyond just the visual to the other senses, uh, like sound and sight, to be able to integrate into like a, a better feeling space, to think about the organization and the process that someone goes through, uh, the ability to have choice in your design uh, and the way that you experience the space, and then uh, letting yourself put the same amount of effort and thought in the smallest scale as well as the largest scale, perhaps to allow for those ahas for for users and for visitors when they, they come to a space. I think that's all fantastic. So you mentioned Parsley Health, you mentioned your work at TIA. Talk to us more about the the other projects you've recently completed and the types of projects that you are working on now and perhaps going forward. Yeah, we're working on a few more locations for TIA, so mm-hmm. stay tuned for those announcements. We are about to start construction for a restaurant in Iceland. There's a hidden theater in it. We're so excited about it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's right on the harbor, on the waterfront. We're working on a project in New York called Clean Market, which is a retail and wellness space that's mm-hmm. all about getting people to feel well. So they have safe and healthy products. They have wellness services like IV nutrient therapy and infrared sauna. We're about to also start construction on a cafe in Brooklyn that's focused on Korean shaved ice desserts. Okay. Called Bingsu and uh, boba teas. And we, let's see, last year, in the in the past year, we just finished a few projects, other healthcare projects for Live by Advantia Health and Health Quarters. And uh, recently we completed Healthy Nest, which is a showroom and, you know, family experience where parents can bond with their babies and toddlers. And we're working on a few really exciting workplace projects as well. And and that's been fun because, we, you know, there's so many questions about, you know, what does return to work look like? And um, we're we're digging into that now. That's fascinating because earlier this year, I had a chance to uh, host a panel discussion at Columbia Business School's real estate symposium. So very different than, say, a conversation between two architects. But in reality, what I found that was so fascinating is that on the other extreme, even of venture capital, people are talking about these blending of asset classes. And in traditional real estate, people are talking about the blending of asset classes. So this idea of how does office become more like the home? How does the home continue to become more like the office with some limits, of course. <laughs> How does retail become more hotel-like? How does hotel become more residential? And let us in about some of the, the thoughts that you're that are going through your mind about what this next generation of office is going to be like. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's a huge part of it, right? Like making it feel like an extension of the home almost. I mean, to a, to a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Can we be walking so around in pajamas? Or is that can that happen? No, yeah, no pajamas, <laughs> no slippers, please. Unless they're designed, <laughs> unless they're designed by Aldelai Architecture, then we can wear them. <laughs> yeah, bringing in new amenities and different amenities to to attract people back to the office. I think amenities, making it feel comfortable. Again, flexibility for how people work and where people work. There's lots and lots more meetings of, yeah, lots and lots of meetings happening now. So providing 
as many phone booths as possible, um, meeting rooms for two, three, four people. I think that's that's the trend that we're seeing. Yeah, and and I think, you know, going back to biophilic design, like giving people access to daylight and fresh air and plants and color and, you know, yeah. I think I'd be I'd be interested in ways that the office space can accommodate two things. One is loud talkers like me, because when I went back to the office for the first time, I realized yes. that I was just gained a habit of talking really loudly, uh, mostly because I've just been in my own room working for the past two years. And I think that allowing people to talk at their nat- their new natural volumes without making other people feel uncomfortable, I think <laughs> is one thing that hopefully uh, the best designers uh, will be uh, able to accomplish. And that the other one is that this notion of this. So for my startup readist, our office is downtown in Soho in a, a flex building, which has some uh, kind of fixed permanent office, some co-working and some spaces in between. And what I find is whenever there is a spike in coronavirus or other concerns related to health, that it effectively shuts down the entire building. I know it's it's not the easiest thing to plan around, but I could imagine that maybe there might be a future where an office isn't something where everyone goes into the same lobby, they touch the same door, the same elevator and the same process and the same large space where they share a desk. Maybe an office is more like multiple entrances and multiple cores and multiple levels where you don't necessarily need to shut down the whole thing if something has happened. There's ways to carve out things such that life kind of continues. Is that something that you've thought of as well? I love that idea. I mean, I think there's definitely challenges in, you know, efficiency and, mm-hmm. you know, building cores and entrances and things like that. But I <laughs> All like those normal logistical things. <laughs> yeah, right. But I like the idea that it feels a little, instead of like a, you know, a huge building, it feels more like, you know, a little village with lots mm-hmm. of small buildings inside, right? <laughs> we're going through the same thing as well. You know, we're, we're an office of 12 and mm-hmm. um, we had a office in Brooklyn prior to the pandemic, uh, what we decided to do was actually, we got rid of our, our lease went up, thankfully. So we put everything in storage. But what we decided to do was actually just lease a small, it's not even office, it's more of a, a meeting room or a collaboration space where we can mm-hmm. get together as needed to talk about the projects, our materials libraries there. And that's it. It's, it's not a space for anybody to work. Mm-hmm at their computer because that's mostly done from home. But we also provide the flexibility of having day passes to co-working spaces Mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, between working at home, having the day passes and having the meeting areas, hopefully we can cover, you know, all of our bases to let people, you know, have the choice to work however they want to work, you know, to get their work done and feel comfortable and feel safe. So what I really enjoy this, about this conversation is whether we're talking about the future of work, the large suite of projects that you're working on, Tia, or your home renovation for your kitchen, uh, which is a very lovely kitchen, uh, is that there's this, this humanist touch to everything. And I had a chance to look at a number of the, the projects that you've that the Mass Design Group has worked on and, and looked through a bunch of their videos. And one thing that really kind of stuck with me is this idea that the search for justice and the search for beauty aren't necessarily wholly separate things. They're actually things that are really intertwined. And that's something that that was so deeply emotional and deeply resonant for me. And as you look at 
this incredible sweep of a career that you had so far. Where's that you want to go from here? Like, what do you what do you hope to accomplish in this next phase of your career as your company grows and you have a wide array of really amazing clients and literally the world's your your oyster? What do you, what do you hope to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I love that too. Masses, you know, statement about beauty is justice and justice is beauty. Mm-hmm. Our firm will be five years old this year, so yay! <laughs> Congratulations. And I, I do think. <laughs> Thanks. Our, our mission is really still evolving. We're, you know, through our early projects, we've uncovered that our, our superpower as a firm is, you know, designing with empathy. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're great listeners. We, we talk to everybody we can possibly talk to to learn about what the project needs and we put ourselves in their shoes. So, you know, that's been a really great starting point and we're working on building processes around that to make sure that that strategy and that approach is really embedded in all of the layers of the work. So, you know, it's not just what is the program, but it's, you know, how how people feel when they come into the office and, you know, what do they touch and, you know, all of those those layers that we talked about. So we're excited to to really build on that. Um, another thing that we're really proud of that we've been able to to do so far is to work with a diverse group of people and mm-hmm. also you know our clients and consultant teams. That's something that I'm you know I I want to develop as well. We're like I said, we're 11 out of 12 of us are women, you know, more than half of us are people of color We're, mm-hmm. you know, we are a minority and women business enterprise in New York City. And, you know, we're we try really hard to work with consultants and contractors that are also minority and women owned businesses as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, our clients come to us because you know, we we want that for their projects as well, and so we we really kind of make sure that all of the options are are there for them, and, and you know, we we try to to guide them to you know bring in a diverse team because it's only for the best of the project. I love it, and that's a future that uh, I want to be a part of as well. That's that's wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Alda. And uh, listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, Please rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know that real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? You can hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests, just like Alda, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Alda and I have made donations to Partners in Health, which provides world-class healthcare and job training to resource-constrained countries. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. 
My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.